welcome to the Web Policy Talk podcast recorded live at the Impact and Policy Research Institute Impri New Delhi Namaste and greetings. I, Ritika Sundar, a researcher at IMPRI, Impact and Policy Research Institute, Prabhav Ivamitti Anusandhan Sanstan, Nadali, warmly welcome you all to IMPRI hashtag by Policy Talk. Today, we have gathered here for a special lecture on From Asia-Pacific to Indo-Pacific Issues and Challenges by Professor Chintamani Mahapatra. This talk is a part of the series, The State of International Affairs, Hashtag Diplomacy Dialogue, which is organized by IMPRI Center for International Relations and Strategic Studies. Today, I deem it my honor to introduce the speaker. Professor Chintamani Mahapatra is Rector of Jawaharlal Nehru University since 2016. He is concurrently Professor of American Studies at the School of International Studies of JNU. Professor Mahapatra is also editor of Indian Foreign Affairs Journal, published by the Association of Indian Diplomats. He is the founder and honorary chairperson of Kalinga Institute of Indo-Pacific Studies. He has held positions such as member, UGC Review Committee, Area Studies Program, member, Fellowship Expert Committee, ICSSR, editor, Indian Foreign Affairs Journal, Member Editorial Board, Strategic Analysis, IDSA. Member Editorial Board, Diaspora Studies and Member, Committee on Studies, Academy of International Studies, Jamia Militia Islamia. Recently, he was the God Chair Professor at Yunnan University of China. He has conducted research in several US presidential libraries and US National Archives and British Public Record Office in London. Professor Mahapatra has authored four books, edited one volume, and has contributed chapters to over 30 edited books. He has published over 70 research articles in reputed journals. He has guided 26 PhD awardees and 51 MPhil degree awardees, and has chaired and presented papers in numerous national and international conferences. He has a wide range of exposure to international academic institutions in the US, UK, France, Israel, Australia, Sweden, China, Vietnam, Singapore, and Austria. He has been awarded a number of international fellowships, such as the Fulbright Fellowship, Commonwealth Fellowship, and Visiting Fellowships to undertake research in the US, UK, Austria, Australia, and many such countries. He has been a visiting faculty in several UGC-run academic staff colleges, the Foreign Service Institute of the Ministry of External Affairs, National Defense College, Army War College, Naval War College, and the College of Air Warfare. He's also a regular commentator in newspapers and on audiovisual media in international affairs. Welcome, sir. We're fortunate to have two distinguished discussants for today's celebration. Welcome, ma'am. Cleo Pascal is an associate fellow in the Environment and Society Program and the Asia Pacific Program. She is a research lead on Chantam House's 
project on perceptions of strategic shifts in the Indo-Pacific from the points of view of the United States, the United Kingdom, India, Japan, Oceania, and France. She has lectured or briefed at a wide range of organizations, including the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, Royal College of Defense Studies, U.S. Department of State, U.S. Army War College, U.S. Air Force, Center for Homeland Defense and Security, Inter-American Defense Board, National Defense College in India, in Oman, the German Foreign Office, Center for National Security Studies, Global Affairs Canada, the European Union, and the Scottish Government, as well as for heads of major corporations and groups of security professionals from over 30 countries. She's widely published in both academic publications and the popular press and is a regular media commentator. She has contributed to, among many others, The World Today, The Diplomat, Defense News, Washington Examiner, the BBC, and is the North America Special Correspondent for the Sunday Guardian newspaper. Patrick Kohlner is Vice President of the German Institute of Global and Area Studies, Director of the GIGA Institute of Asian Studies, and the Professor of Political Science at the University of Hamburg. He studied at the universities of Constance and Essex and holds a doctorate and habilitation in political science from Humboldt, University of Berlin and the University of Trier respectively. His research interests revolve around political organizations and institutions in various parts of Asia and in a comparative perspective. Recent publications include co-edited special issues on think tank development in East Asia and on political transformation in Myanmar, the co-edited volumes, comparative area studies, methodological rationals, and cross-regional applications, and from Asia-Pacific to Indo-Pacific, diplomacy in a contested region, and a journal article on changing China policies in Australia and New Zealand. Welcome, sir. We look forward to learning from our distinguished speaker and eminent panelists, and we look forward to quite an enriching deliberation. With that, I invite Dr. Simi Mehta, CEO and Editorial Director, IMPRI, New Delhi, the moderator of today's session to take over. Welcome, ma'am. Thank you, Ritika, and good evening to everyone. Thank you for such an elaborate uh, introduction to our esteemed panelists, and we are so proud to be hosting this today. So uh, the term Indo-Pacific is much in vogue, and it has in fact come to replace the earlier used term um, or the concept Asia-Pacific. Um, the term in fact was uh, first used by the German uh, geopolitician in the 1920s called, um, named Karl Hauschofer. And um, then ever since um, Shinzo Abe spoke about the confluence of the Indian and the Pacific Oceans, uh, the term has really gained a lot of prominence and it has started getting, uh, in fact, started being used in the strategic documents and also actions of the uh, of various nations like India, America, uh, very recently by the European Union, etc. So, uh, in fact, um, uh, James Mattis, uh, then US Secretary of State, had said that, um, you know, that um, uh, the Indo-Pacific is a region where no country should or could try to dominate 
the, the region. Uh, but very recently, if we see the uh, declassified document on this U.S. strategic uh, U.S. Indo uh, U.S. strategic framework for the in uh, for the Indo-Pacific, we see that uh, the American goal has been very very significantly underscored as being maintaining of uh, maintenance of uh, U.S. strategic primacy in the region. So, uh, where are we heading towards? There are several questions that arise. Uh, what's in the nomenclature from Asia Pacific to Indo Pacific? Um, does it really uh, does it really represent a sinocentric reorganization vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the American goal of uh, supremacy in the region? Um, that there are several divergences, in fact, in the uh, in the concept of Indo Pacific from national objectives to the geopolitical expanse to several bilateral, minilateral, and also um, uh, multilateral um, reorientations in terms of trade and cooperation. So um, can we really approach the uh, region in a less geopoliticized and less militarized uh, narrative? Um, should India uh, should India and other countries um, or should they actually try to decouple China in their approach towards the Indo-Pacific? What are at what are the things that are there at stake? So there are so many questions that needs answer, and uh, I'm so happy and so privileged that this uh, session on um, uh, from Asia Pacific to Indo-Pacific issues and challenges is being uh, uh, is being lectured upon by Professor Maha. Patra, Professor Chintamani Mahapatra, my teacher uh, foremost, and um, a wonderful um, scholar of the, um, the Indo-Pacific studies. So, so thank you so much for accepting our invitation and thank you to our distinguished um, discussants, Dr. Cleo Pascal and uh, Professor Kolna for joining us. So I would also request all the, I welcome all the participants and request you to um, sit back and um, assess the discussion. And also if you have any questions, you could uh, write them on the chat box here. And also to those who are watching us on Facebook Live, you could pose your questions there and identify whom the question is for. So without much ado, I would uh, invite Professor Mahapatra to begin his lecture. So over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Simi, Dr. Arjun, Impri. My best wishes to both of you and your organization. Uh, you've been doing very well. And also I feel pretty honored. And also uh, I get an opportunity to share some of my thoughts on Indo-Pacific. Uh, long time ago, I floated a course called US Policy Towards the Asia Pacific. I have changed the title to US Policy Towards Indo-Pacific. I floated uh, a think tank called Kalinga Institute of Indo-Pacific uh, before even the Ministry of External Affairs uh, developed a new desk called Indo-Pacific. Indo-Pacific is a relatively a new concept. Uh, intellectually, of course, you said that is rooted in German thinking, but in terms of its operation, uh, it is relatively of recent origin. And very correctly, you pointed out that from 2007 onwards, it was uh, the Japanese Prime Minister Abe who made it more and more popular. It has had its own ups and downs. Uh, you know, it was almost buried in oblivion for quite some time and later it was revived again. And slowly, slowly it has developed in a way where it has come to be accepted as a new geopolitical construct. Now, 
this new geopolitical construct is still evolving. There are many countries who have their own notions and understanding of the Indo-Pacific concept. There is no unanimity of views on what exactly is Indo-Pacific. Is it just a geography? Is it a strategy? Is it geopolitics? Uh, is it new foreign policy and national security orientations of major powers? Different countries have different opinions, different views, but Indo-Pacific as a geopolit geopolitical construct has come to stay. And again, uh, Dr. Simi very correctly pointed out that Asia-Pacific is a term that is slowly, slowly disappearing. Now, let me say a few things about uh, this uh, definition of different regions. And later I'll come to the major developments taking place in the Indo-Pacific. Then I'll move on to very important challenges faced by the you know, countries in the Indo-Pacific. And then I'll, I'll, I'll conclude with some of my views on this issue, but I will rather you know, answer the questions. So instead of giving a long lecture, I can speak for two hours on this, but then we'll go nowhere. So I would rather uh, request all of you to pose your questions so I can be more clear and I can answer your queries and questions. And of course, I have two distinguished uh, you know, panelists. They are experts in their own respective field. They can also help me in responding to your questions and queries if I'm not able to do so, right? Having said that, there is always a little bit of humpty dumptiness in defining a region. Even Asia Pacific, although this, this particular term was used for a couple of decades, that term was contested, particularly by India. India felt very uncomfortable with the whole notion of Asia Pacific as it was discussed, debated, written upon, lectured upon by many, many scholars and even the policymakers. And why was that? India was not able to understand why, having such a long border with China and Southeast Asia, India was not considered to be part of Asia Pacific. APEC, Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation, India even put in the applications to be a member of APEC, but many people argued that India is not a Pacific country, so it cannot be part of it. That time I debated and I said, the United States is a Pacific country, but not an Asian country. So if the US can be part of Asia Pacific, why not India being one of the major Asian countries and part of the Pacific? We're back in 1943 when the World War I, World War II was still going on and Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru, the first prime minister was in jail and he was jutting down his thoughts. In 1943, he talked about the future of India and India's engagement with the rest of the world and he used the term Asia Pacific. So why is India kept out of it? Remember in 1954, when Southeast Asia Treaty Organization was signed in Manila, you know, the geographical scope of Southeast Asia Treaty Organization expanded up to Pakistan, west of India. And now when they talk about Asia Pacific saying that India is not part of Asia Pacific was unacceptable to India. Likewise, today, Asia Pacific has been replaced by and large by the new construct called Indo-Pacific. There are many countries who don't like it. Some of them openly oppose it. China happens to be one of the countries, you know, which does not like the concept of Indo-Pacific. 
Russia does not accept the term Indo-Pacific. ASEAN countries were pretty hesitant in accepting the term Indo-Pacific for a different set of reasons. China thought that Indo-Pacific is targeting China. Russia was with China and opposed it. And the ASEAN countries thought, you know, Indo-Pacific is such a new concept. They're worried about losing ASEAN centrality in multilateral activities in the region. Even they were not pretty comfortable about comfortable about. In fact, even India did not accept it at one go. It took quite a while for India to accept the term Indo-Pacific, particularly since the Modi government came to power, it has been widely accepted as, uh, as uh, a new kind of construct, which will be more useful in understanding the dynamics of this larger region than making it just Asia-Pacific, right? So different countries are, have different notions even now. Today, you have an uh, ASEAN outlook on Indo-Pacific. Prime Minister Narendra Modi has outlined India's approach towards the Indo-Pacific and the foreign minister and the prime minister are using the term quite often now. In the United States, the National Security Strategy Report talked about the Indo-Pacific. The Defense, Defense Department has come up with a new document in 2018. The American Congress has passed a new law where Indo-Pacific concept has been accepted. Japan, of course, has been promoting the very idea of Indo-Pacific since 2007. In 2017, even the defense white paper of uh, Australia talked about Indo-Pacific. More recently, European Union has brought out a new report, a strategy report on Indo-Pacific. So Indo-Pacific has been widely accepted as the right kind of geopolitical and geoeconomic construct where developments can be understood in a better way than any, any uh, any other region. Having said that, let me underline this point that Asia Pacific is actually subsumed under Indo Pacific. Indo Pacific is much larger than Asia Pacific as understood earlier. And because in the post Cold War era, we found more and more trade and commercial activities going on in a, in a larger region, when China became uh, uh, you know, a new dynamic economy and its economic growth was galloping like a horse, China found that most of its raw materials would be sourced from Africa. And American, uh, sorry, the Chinese factories and uh, industries would be demanding more and more energy resources from West Asia. Both the energy resources and the raw materials are coming through Indian Ocean going to China. So even from Chinese perspective, this particular construct Indo-Pacific would be more relevant and significant, although the Chinese government is opposing it for political reasons. Now, having said that, let me now move on to some of the major challenges uh, in, in, in the Indo-Pacific region. Now, many people talk about some challenges uh, repeatedly. And all those uh, arguments are correct. Number one, terrorism is a bigger challenge. Piracy is also a challenge in the region. Drugs trafficking is another problem. Small arms proliferation is another problem. Nuclear proliferation remains the challenge in this part of the world. And, and if you add to this list of challenges in the Indo-Pacific, then the most recent one is, of course, the pandemic. The pandemic is, of course, a global health crisis. 
but in the Indo-Pacific region, also it is uh, posing a tremendous amount of challenge both to the society and the economy of all the countries of this region. So if anybody would discuss about the current challenges faced by the Indo-Pacific in the larger term, the mega picture, then the economic disruptions that took place because of uh, pandemic would be actually priority number one. The supply chains were disrupted. Millions of people become unemployed. Factories and industries almost came to a halt. Movement of people stopped. All kinds of industries, including hotels and tourism, stopped. Even seminar conferences, in-person seminar conferences also stopped, yet to begin uh, in the process. Many countries feel that how to go beyond the pandemic now. Many countries are opening up slowly, slowly, trying to address the economic uh, calamities in a way uh, that they have been encountering from uh, the pandemic and how best to promote trade, investment, restore the economic growth and dynamism remain one of the critical challenges in this part of the world. It is not only a health crisis, it is also a crisis for survival because millions of people have been out of jobs. How to empower them economically, how to alleviate poverty, millions and millions of people uh, who are otherwise uh, no longer poor people and their position was elevated to the lower middle class or even up middle class. They went back below the poverty line of the respective countries. So this is a very big challenge for all the countries in the region. However, uh, if I now come to, uh, maybe before I talk about my uh, what should I say? Uh, my uh, main, main, main idea, something new, something different. Let me very briefly explain uh, the position of the major powers uh, in the Indo-Pacific. Now, I'm now moving on to the political security issue. The following developments have been taking place for quite some time. Number one is the concern in the Indo-Pacific about relative decline of the United States. Some would argue relatively the US is now less engaged in the Indo-Pacific than before. Of course, the Americans have their own answer, Afghanistan crisis and so many other issues. But the fact is that many countries felt that the US, which has been the dominant power in this region, uh, is showing less interest and it is relatively a waning power. Its influence is waning in the region, and that became a concern for many countries, including ASEAN countries, South Korea, Japan, even South Asia. Number two, when they were concerned about the relative decline of the USA, simultaneously, they were more worried and in a way, desperate about the rise of China, which initially was considered to be peaceful rise of China and the Chinese government promoted the idea of peaceful rise, but slowly, slowly, its aggressive postures, its assertive behavior came to the surface and many countries found that now the Chinese are aspiring not only to become, not only to become a superpower, 
but to establish a new kind of hegemony in the Indo-Pacific region and maybe beyond that. And this Chinese, uh, uh, I mean, this perception about China's ambition to become a new hegemony also was because the Chinese economic policies were not very transparent. In the process, what happened? Because of these two concerns, Japan, India, Australia, ASEAN, and a few other countries, they began to search for a new kind of relationship, new kind of networking, defense, and security within the region because they were not pretty sure about the reliability of the United State, uh, States as a security provider. They're not sure how much the US would come to the rescue if the Chinese hegemony would turn more violent, more aggressive, more oppressive, more suppressive like that. In that kind of trend, you find that Japan began to cultivate India and Australia at the same time. Japan, which gave more emphasis to foreign economic policy, began to change its course and become more, more vocal uh, in uh, security issues of the Indo-Pacific region, signed agreements with India and Australia, even on defense and security matters. Even it began to rearm itself. Japanese military has, has been considered by many as one of the most sophisticated military machine in this part of the world, but it never uh, you know, came to the surface of the discussion on security issues because of their own constitutional constraints and all. Japan has been trying very hard to go beyond the constitutional constraints to come to terms with the new development. Japan is not very comfortable with the rise of China. In fact, they have problems in Senkaku Island and numerous Chinese ships regularly visit the Senkaku Island and in a way trouble the Japanese. Sometimes the Japanese aircraft, of course, they zoom past the Chinese ships, but it is troublesome for them. It is more than a kind of irritation. And then of course, North Korea became a de facto nuclear power and increasingly a missile power. And the Japanese were really concerned about North Korea. And they were worried about winning influence and engagement of the United States. So they began to look for new kind of network with both Australia and India. There are so many details about it, but that's the fact. If you see Australia, it did the same thing. It had more uh, defense and security ties with India and Japan. And India did the same thing. India, of course, never wants to become an alliance partner of any country. Although Indo-US strategic partnership is improving by the day, and Indo-US defense and security ties are much deeper than even economic relationship. The fact remains that India would continue to um, you know, follow the policy of strategic autonomy and not go for any kind of alliance. But in the meantime, India tried to build up good, robust relationship with regional countries, particularly Japan and Australia in the Indo-Pacific. That is why what we saw as the consequence of this movement is new kind of minilaterals, trilaterals, quadrilaterals, uh, you know, activities in the region. Japan, US, and India had a triangle. India, Japan, and Australia, another triangular relationship. The latest one that is evolving is Japan, India, and France. 
And recently, all of us heard about so many different kinds of comments on AUKUS, Australia, US, and UK, a new defense pact on uh, nuclear power submarine. And, it is, it is, it, and that understanding goes beyond just helping Australia in having uh, some submarines, nuclear, nuclear power submarines. And then, of course, beyond the triangle, you have the quad. Quadrilateral Security Initiative is another major development uh, in, uh, in the Indo-Pacific region. Of course, for a long time here, you had different kind of multilateral, multilateral activities uh, centered around ASEAN, ARF, East Asia Summit. And then you have uh, the Defense Ministerial Dialogue between ASEAN and its uh, partners. Uh, there's, there's, there were so many, but now these new trilaterals and quadrilaterals are occupying more space. And there, there are certain apprehension in the region that the older ones are going to be sidelined. Of course, the US, India, Japan, all of them have repeatedly said that no, the idea is not to move ASEAN out of the picture. All of them have recognized ASEAN centrality. Significantly, in the G20 meeting recently, and before that, in the G7 meeting, Indo-Pacific was one of the major uh, agenda. Even G20 and G G7, powerful grouping of nations, also now talk more and more about Indo-Pacific. And all of them, all of them emphasize on this fact that ASEAN centrality will continue to be important. Right. So these are the challenges. I'm sorry, these are the new developments that are taking place in this, in, uh, in this part of the world. Nothing is very concretized. Uh, nothing is uh, officially so regular. They are still evolving. But why are they evolving? And what are the main reasons why such a thing is happening? Here I'll come to my uh, major points that I would like to share with all of you. Uh, some of you may think that I'm wrong, but this is what my view is. I have some reason uh, to back up my argument and uh, we can debate on that. Now, I have a strong feeling that in the very near future, all of us are going to witness a new kind of debate uh, in international relations. And that debate is going to center around the relative decline of China. When I say this, people will, some, some people will laugh at me. When everyone is talking about <clears throat> an aspiring superpower, challenging the United States, modernizing its Navy, establishing new naval bases, and giving the Americans run for their own money, now spending billions and billions of dollars in their Belt and Road Initiative, carving out a new kind of hegemony. Many, many countries starting from Asia up to Europe have taken Chinese money. Chinese influence is now all, all over, all pervasive. How can China be a declining power? I understand that is true, but there are certain things that are developing in here. Now, before I give my reasons as to why I'm saying so, let me underline two points. One, most of the countries, I exclude Pakistan, North Korea, Iran, and countries like that, most of the countries 
who have direct interest in the Indo-Pacific. They believe in certain things where China does not believe. Number one, a rule-based order. China doesn't talk about it. The United Nations Conference on uh, Law of the Seas, on clause. China doesn't agree with this. The notion of an open and free Indo-Pacific, peaceful resolution of disputes, not the way Chinese are doing along Sino-Indian border and South China Sea and East China Sea. Opposition to unilateral and forceful change of boundaries. Developing a transparent and eco-friendly investment uh, climate in the region particularly in the in, in funding the in, in infrastructure projects uh, in the, the members of the BRI. These six or seven points, most of the countries now agree it should be like that. China does not agree with. And then also all of them believe in ASEAN centrality. Now, while these, these countries, the major powers and middle powers, they believe in this concept, they are worried about some of the policies of China. Let me just list them out. China's policies towards, towards North Korea. China's engagement with the current Myanmarese government. And of course, the debt trap that people talk about. Just to give you an example, the Chinese gave a lot of money, billions of dollars to the Sri Lankans. But the Chinese technicians, the Chinese laborers, the Chinese engineers all came and developed the Hammond Tata port. Now, Sri Lanka was not able to even pay the debt, uh, debt servicing interest. So now, Sri Lanka has signed an agreement for the next 99 years. China is going to operate the Hammond Tata port. Debt trap. There are so many other countries facing the same thing. right? And all these countries are really worried about that. The way China has been cultivating Taliban. China is not cultivating Taliban for promoting regional peace and stability or prosperity. China is wooing the Taliban so that Taliban would not interfere in what the Chinese government is doing in Xinjiang. About a million people there now in some kind of concentration camps. There are, I think, a couple of thousands of Uyghurs in Afghanistan. And the Chinese want the Taliban to control the Uyghurs in Afghanistan. That is good. And then, of course, the muscle flexing of China in South China Sea and East China Sea, all of us know very well. More recently, the aggressive behavior vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. 200 times the Chinese aircraft have violated the airspace of Taiwan in that ADIG. And Taiwanese are really really, really worried. There are work clouds over Taiwan and many countries don't like it. Of course, I don't know how many countries uh, would support India, but the fact is India does not like the way the Chinese are behaving around the LSE. 13, 14 rounds of discussion have taken place. They're turning violent from time to time. And then of course, I'm not saying anything new. Is there any country which does not believe that China did not do what it should have done when the Wuhan virus was detected in China. Immediately, they clamped a lockdown across China. 
that allowed thousands of people to travel outside China. And that is why the global pandemic, many countries that think that it, Chinese government could have prevented it, but there was no information at all. They hide it. More concerning for many countries around the world is, of course, the Chinese influence operations. They are penetrating into the universities, think tanks, the media, the civil societies to create a discourse which would be pro-China oriented. It has been detected. The US is now asking most of the American universities to say goodbye to the Confucius Institutes. Australians are doing the same thing. European countries are doing the same thing. So these are the concerns that are going on. But if the Chinese are you know, flexing the muscle and having good ties with nuclear powers like North Korea and Pakistan and all, then how can Professor Mahapatra say that China is uh, going to be declining power? I'm not saying declining power, I'm saying uh, a relative decline uh, because of two reasons. Whatever is happening within China right now, particularly in the field of economy, is going to have cascading effect on the rest of the world, more particularly in the Indo-Pacific region. Most of the countries of the Indo-Pacific, even beyond that, they have discovered a good trade partner with China. China happens to be the number one trade partner of dozens and dozens of countries. Now, that Chinese economy is facing tremendous amount of problem at home. I'm sure all of you have heard about Evergrande. Evergrande is the second largest real estate company in China, which has run into $300 billion worth of debt. Not only that, they are not able to pay back. They're about to default. They have made one or two payments, not adequate. More disturbing is, although they have made some payment to the 10% of the investors within China, large number of banks, the American banks and the European banks, which have given loan to uh, Evergrande, they're not getting payment and they're concerned. And the Chinese government at the moment is not going to rescue as per the reports ever again. And in the process, millions of dollars will be lost by even the international bankers from the US and uh, from the US and, and from Europe and elsewhere. Evergrande is not the only real estate company. There are three, four other major companies which also have run into debt and they're not able to pay the money, they're defaulting. This is a concern. What is more concerning is in 2020 and 2021, large number of Chinese companies have already defaulted. And out of them, about half of them happen to be state-owned companies. Not only that, the Chinese government, the local government, the state governments, so many governments in China have raised so much of debt. Those debt are not in the books, no record. And recently, uh, you know, UBS in Switzerland and some of the uh, institutions, they revealed 
that the hidden debt the Chinese government has is to the tune of $8 trillion, which is very risky. So because of the Chinese behavior that I described in very just a while ago, large number of companies, big companies from Japan, from South Korea, from the United States are leaving China. Some of them have come to India, some of them are going to Vietnam, some of them are going to Japan and the United States. The US government, of course, uh, has uh, asked all the companies to come back home and start manufacturing at home. The Japanese government is now giving, uh, you know, financial reward, more than $2 billion to the companies who would like to relocate into Japan. Same in case of Samsung and other South Korean companies, they're leaving China. And why are they leaving China? Because the labor cost has increased. Because the Chinese government itself is reorienting its economy uh, from uh, you know, this construction activities and export-oriented industries to now more consumption-based economy. And that is why they are leaving China. They are looking for places where the labor cost will be less and the regulations will not be more stringent. They have also tested how the Chinese government behaves. China allows a large field for the companies to come and invest. And once they invest, they ask for the technology transfer. Once the technology transfer to the Chinese company, then the Chinese government will buy most of the things from the Chinese companies and not from that foreign company. <laughs> so lots of problems there and they are leaving. Recently, I don't know how many of you took note of, China was facing tremendous energy crisis. Almost half of the cities in China, uh, you know, they were uh, not having adequate electricity. The Chinese government asked the industries and the factories to reduce production and why is that? Part of the reasons, there are so many other reasons, part of the reason is Australia challenged China and said, open up more and more the facility in Wuhan so that WHO can come and find out the exact origin of the Wuhan virus. And what China did, China imposed sanctions on Australia, stopped buying Australian coal. And in the process, 56% of the Chinese energy which comes from coal, uh, they were running short of coal. And some of those coal which, which are lying somewhere near the Chinese coast and the government was not allowing, actually India bought some of them. Because even we need energy tremendously, right? That's the reason. Now, you'll be surprised that some of the big companies, particularly the IT companies in China, like for example, Alibaba and Tencent and so many other companies, those individuals, they, made China very famous. And all of them are now the target of the Chinese government. Right? A lot of new regulations are coming up. China is going to start now a new property tax and people are worried. And those people who have lost their jobs because foreign companies are leaving, they are out on the street to protest. Now, protest movements are going on in many parts of China. Interestingly, in last uh, few years, the number of Chinese citizens who have applied for asylum abroad is more than 600,000 asylum seekers. 
right now because of all these reasons plus many more like for example the effort by japan india the us and many who have realized that most of the important uh, goods and commodities have the supply chains which run through china now they want an alternative although some people very strongly argue let's decouple decoupling is very painful for the search for an alternative uh, supply chain a value supply chain is already on japan india australia are trying their own in recently in g20 meeting also now even the government of india is repeatedly saying prime minister modi has repeatedly said that we want resilient and and reliable value supply chain so that one government should not be able to disrupt and there is a fear that chinese government would disrupt poverty in china has also increased you know if you draw a line from the north east to little bit south and southwest large part of the country beyond that line are like any other developing country china does not show that part of china to others now because of these domestic challenges where president xi jinping is behaving in a very very authoritarian way have jailed many of his competitors in the name of you know fighting corruption and all that is trying to make his rule almost perpetual and all there are popular discontent not able to come to the surface because of complete control the surveillance of the citizens complete surveillance of the citizens these things are going on in order to divert the problem being faced at home probably i am not sure probably the chinese muscle muscle flexing abroad is taking place to raise nationalism at home americans are creating problem the japanese have occupied our island the vietnamese are not uh, you know the, the vietnamese are contesting our island so there are there is a theory which says that if the government uh, finds tremendous amount of stress and strains and challenges to deal it tries to divert the attention of the people i think china is doing that including in 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 taiwan so in the near future probably we are not no, no longer going to hear only how many aircraft carrier built by china how many hypersonic missiles going around the earth all those things will come once in a while and frighten terrify other people because many people focus on what is what the china is doing in a very mega way and less focus on what is actually happening within the country i can go on and on and on but let me put a full stop because we have distinguished people they they are going to say a lot of things on this with a concluding line one of the concerns of the chinese people and the chinese government is they will grey before they become rich the aging population in china is very high so they are dreaming up in you know, 100 years of revolution 2049 of china will become very rich and all they may become rich but the people will become old that's a concern there are 30 million uh, you know the gender gap <laughs> male and female ratio in china is 30 million 
There are Pakistani women who are smuggled in. Some of them get married. Some of them are thrown into the market. Same thing is happening in Southeast Asian countries as well. So there is a social crisis. There is a brewing economic crisis. And then, of course, China's muscle flexing. And in the middle of all these, when the leader says, common prosperity, people question that. Thank you, Simi. You gave me a lot of time. So thank you so much. In fact, your robust analysis and unique observations actually converge with your uh, eloquence. And uh, as uh, I sat through taking notes as if I was in your class. So thank you so much for your wonderful lecture. I would like to invite Dr. Cleo Pascal for uh, her remarks. Thank you, ma'am, for joining us this morning from uh, Washington, D.C. Over to you, ma'am. Hi. Th thank you very much, Dr. Mehta and Imfri and uh... Professor Colner, and especially Professor uh, Patrick, it's wonderful to see you again. Um, you, yeah, there's so much. Um, it's very difficult to, to know what the line goes through. But fortunately, I, I learned from you um, a very helpful line to look through um, at what China is doing and, and how to um, uh, understand where the strengths and weaknesses are. And that's their own view of comprehensive national power, which was something that we discussed in a panel a long time ago. And you said, oh, that's interesting. You should look at it. And I, I followed your very good advice and have been uh, looking at it ever since. Um, so the things that, that uh, Professor Matt Petra was talking about in terms of China's economic strategy and the big things and the domestic weaknesses and all that sort of stuff all tied together uh, in the way that China looks at the world. Um, or specifically the Chinese Communist Party looks at the world. And that is that um, it wants to be number one in terms of comprehensive national power. And it is very comprehensive the way that they look at it. So it's access to resources, it's access to um, uh, human capital, it's military positioning, it's all of the things that we might have in a whole bunch of different ministries come under one rubric. Um, so that's why, for example, if you go to a very small country in the Pacific, you'll see an enormous Chinese embassy because they don't just see it as a small diplomatic posting. They see it as strategically crucial and a way of perhaps cutting off Australia in the case of war or things like that. They have a whole different way of, uh, of looking at the world, which is how the Belt and Road Initiative came about. It, it makes no economic sense. Uh, but it makes strategic sense from a Chinese comprehensive national power perspective. And, and they have to, to some, some and, and, it, and, and when they say national power in terms of comprehensive national power, the nation in, the, in that conceptualization is the Chinese Communist Party. The goal is really the preservation of the Chinese Communist Party and specifically the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. So um, Understanding that and understanding how widespread, which Professor Mapatra has just covered extremely well, um, it is geographically and also economically and socially and all that stuff, you can see where there's weakness. So weakness that can be pushed back on through things like redirection of supply chain, like the Supply Chain Resilience Initiative or all of these, uh, or the Quad or AUKUS or tri other trilaterals, all of that challenges uh, the way China likes to operate, which is to advance its comprehensive national power bilaterally, because then the person they're negotiating with is at their weakest. That's how they got Sri Lanka. If Sri Lanka had been part of a larger grouping, it would have been more difficult for China to go in and, and do what they had done, uh, which, is, which is why we're starting to see, as strategic communities understand what China is doing, new ways of pushing back. 
So now India is looking at its own port, perhaps next to the Chinese port in Sri Lanka. And India is working with Japan in, in ways that you're talking about. And it also compensates for uh, what we get in democracies all the time, which is changes in government that may or may not have the same alignment as the previous one. Um, and so, I mean, currently what, I mean, you know, I, uh, the, the, uh, there, there aren't even words to describe what happened in Afghanistan, basically. And, um, and, and that, and Afghanistan is a very interesting example of how the transition from the Asia Pacific conceptualization, um, because Asia Pacific can very, there was a question about India, of course, if you work with India or you're in India, you know it's part of the Asia Pacific, but Central Asia was a big part of that. And, and India always knew that. Indo-Pacific, Central Asia isn't really looked at very much, but India bridges the maritime world and the Central Asian world. So just as an aside, one thing I would be careful of in the Indo-Pacific discussions, uh, in, India is central to the Indo-Pacific discussions and security in Afghanistan is very important for India. So not, not, to, not to allow those things to be disaggregated. So when you're sitting with uh, colleagues in the US and they're talking about Japan and Australia and AUKUS and all that stuff, they need to know India's concerns about what's going on just to the West of it as well. Because that affects not only India domestically, but India's ability to uh, collaborate and work with others because it may have some very serious problems right on its border, which, um, will be uh, very likely China by proxy as well. So it does link into the Indo-Pacific um, kind of restructuring, but by land. So um, yeah, so don't, so that, that was just an aside about not forgetting, not for us who are not in India, not to forget how important uh, including what's happening in Central Asia and Afghanistan into the Indo-Pacific discussion. Um, in terms of this kind of pushback, once you understand this comprehensive national power thing, that's of course why Japan has just put in place a new minister for economic security. You know, there is an understanding that the way that uh, China is engaging is across the board. And in that context, India is essential because India can not only, you know, kind of replace China in terms of supply chains, you have a very, you have very high skilled labor force, uh, you know, you speak English, you a large, large youthful population, all that stuff. Um, but you can also do economics at, you know, in a way that is much more appropriate for a lot of the developing countries in the region. So if you're in a, a country like the Pacific Islands, which I do a lot of work in currently, they really want more Indian engagement because they, they, feel, first of all, the cultural cultural linguistic compatibilities, but also, um, you know, uh, somebody from the Red Cross in Tonga was saying, you know, we asked New Zealand for a tent and it arrives four months later made in India. Well, you know, why not just work with India? <laughs> um, so there, and, and creating that kind of economic stability is essential during uh, the situation that we may be heading into, as Professor Mahapatra just described, whether trying to get stronger or gets weaker, neither is good news, <laughs> you know. Um, so we need to create as much resilience among 
the free world, the democracies, people are concerned about China as possible. We do these through these overlapping networks that, that create resilience in all of the different ways China is trying to create instability. Um, and I'll just finish with kind of just a very quick example. Um, we've been tracking what's been going on in the Solomon Islands. Solomon Islands uh, switched from Taiwan to China in, in 2019. Uh, it was very unpopular decision domestically. Taiwan had a very good reputation domestically in the Solomon Islands. Um, and the, but the central government, uh, and, and this was reported, you know, there was a lot of money involved and the switch happened. And there was one province uh, where the premier of the province wanted to maintain a relationship with Taiwan, but it wasn't because of Taiwan. It was because he believes in democracy and he believes that if you work with China, it will create a problem in your country. And uh, he got very sick and uh, he needed medical care that wasn't available in the country. And the Chinese put pressure on the central government to try to restrict his access out of the country for medical care. So it's an exporting of the social credit system. You don't like China, you know, you, you, don't, you don't believe in the Chinese Communist Party, we're gonna leave you to die. Luckily, through the aid of Professor Nalapat, you mentioned, he got in touch with some people in Taiwan and he went to Taiwan for medical care. He got the medical care he needed. He returned to the Solomon Islands as the premier of Malaita province uh, about a month ago. And through the influence of the, of the CCP, through the central government, they immediately started a vote of no confidence motion against him in his province. Thousands of people came out on the streets to protest that. And uh, this was last Wednesday. They had the, the police had to intervene and they had to withdraw the vote of no confidence. But you had a situation where Chinese political interference in the Solomon Islands almost created a civil war last week. So the tentacles are very deep and the, the, their ability to destabilize across the region is very, very high. And nobody, Nobody's come to the aid of those people in the Solomon Islands, not Australia, not the US, not Taiwan, you know. So, so we, we're starting at those high level, uh, at the AUKUS and the Quad and the military stuff and the big stuff, but China's still doing that destabilizing thing at the ground level and they are fine with creating authoritarian regimes. It benefits Beijing to create, to turn the Solomon Islands into a dictatorship because the West, then the West can't deal with it and they become more reliant on Beijing. So we're, whatever happens in Beijing, whether, whether they start to fall apart domestically or not, uh, we are heading into some very difficult times and um, uh, in many sectors and uh, India already has its own challenges and it just has a new challenge that just developed on the Western side but um, the sort of work that you guys are doing and especially Kalinga Institute to try to understand the region as a whole and how India fits into it is gonna be an essential part of trying to figure out how to find the solutions to create stability across the region during a very difficult time. So I thank you very much, uh, uh, Imphri, but also personally, Professor Matt Patrick for all you've done for guiding a lot of us down this path. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Pascal, for your interesting insights. Uh, I would invite Professor Patrick Kolner for uh, sharing his views. Professor. 
Right, thank you very much indeed. It's a genuine pleasure and, and privilege to share the screen uh, with two such distinguished uh, colleagues. Um, Actually, it's been quite fascinating so far, this, this event. Uh, I mean, one thing that, that I found uh, quite, quite interesting is how much we talked about China, uh, when actually sort of, you know, this, this whole event is supposed to be about the Indo-Pacific. Um, actually, we also talked a bit about sort of the Pacific uh, Island uh, uh, countries. I guess sort of, you know, 10 years ago, hardly anyone would, would have talked about it, which is a, is a pity in itself. Uh, but of course, you know, they were considered a strategic backwater uh, after the end of the Cold War. Of course, that, that changed very much. Uh, with China's increased uh, regional presence and with the sort of responses of traditional regional powers uh, there, Australia and New Zealand uh, responding that, uh, also the US taking greater interest. And of course, we have to talk about uh, China to, to quite some degree because the Indo-Pacific as, as a concept wouldn't be there uh, without China's rise. And, and the, the challenges, um, the perceived challenges uh, that, that uh, um, you know, uh, come with that. Um, let, let me just say a few words in my remarks uh, about sort of the rise of the Indo-Pacific concept, um, some sort of uh, implications of, of that concept, and if time allows, but probably not, so you know, we can come back to that in Q&A about sort of the European strategy for cooperation in the Indo-Pacific. So the Indo-Pacific uh, as a concept, well, obviously, I mean, until a few years ago, um, so the term Indo-Pacific uh, was only known to marine biologists studying the fish and mammals traversing the Pacific and Indian Oceans. I mean, little would fish care whether one sort of you know, body of water was called the Pacific and the adjacent body of water was called uh, sort of the, the Indian Ocean. But of course, today, uh, the term can be found in many official documents and the EU strategy and cooperation on the Indo-Pacific is just the, the most recent one. I would, I would argue uh, that the term Indo-Pacific, of course, as we've heard, has come su uh, to supplant in many ways the older Asia-Pacific one. But I would, I would suggest that it's also about different kind of ages uh, that, that we're actually talking about. So while the older Asia-Pacific Asia uh, term very much epitomized the age of accelerated globalization and economic interdependence um, centering on that, that region, uh, then sort of uh, the Indo-Pacific very much then epitomizes a new age um, shaped by geopolitical and geoeconomic dynamics that are linked indeed to, to the rise of China. And it's quite telling that sort of the principal organizational expression of the Asia-Pacific age was APEC, right? So an organization set up to promote growth and regional um, uh, economic integration while the principal sort of institutional expression of the Indo-Pacific age is the Quad, which at the core is a security um, sort of arrangement, right? So we have heard about sort of how sort of the Indo-Pacific came about and has been used by strategic thinkers in India and Australia, and how then governments in, in, uh, in, in Delhi, in uh, Tokyo, in, in Washington, in, in Canberra, uh, latched on, on the terms and sort of how there has been quite a bit sort of development into, into policies in terms of the free and open uh, Indo-Pacific, right? That is a term very much used by, by the US government, of course, also by the Japanese government who came up with that. And basically this policy has, has three important dimensions. So first it's about balancing, right? So that is about developing a stable multipolar balance in the region that can accommodate both a rising China um, and the formerly hegemonic United States. Secondly, it's also about connectivity. So building and improving infrastructure in the region um, and for better connecting the Indian and the Pacific Ocean parts. 
And third is about order building. So emphasizing the importance and, uh, of maintaining commonly accepted rules and norms of interstate behavior. Um, I think what, what is important, important takeaway term, uh, important takeaway um, from, from this all is that sort of the Indo-Pacific is, is very much a concept sort of in, invented by strategists. So that is different from, from other terms that, that we have seen in, in, in the past. Um, so I think it was uh, Amitav Acharya, an eminent international relations uh, scholar, who recently noted that um, sort of the, the term Far East, that was something that, that nationalists um, uh, sort of uh, coined, uh, sorry, that imperialists uh, coined, right? While sort of uh, Asia was very much a term that nationalists in pre and post-war uh, World War II, China, India, Vietnam, and elsewhere, they rallied around that, that, that term. Then East Asia was very much the term of choice for culturalists, while economists uh, did much to promote the concept of the Asia-Pacific. And now then, Indo-Pacific, it finally is a term brought into life by, by strategists, right? Um, and, and indeed, um, sort of, we, we've seen sort of, you know, very different conceptions of the Indo-Pacific, and they, they're all, and I think that's also important to note, they're all based on, on certain political intentions and interests. So the term Indo-Pacific and its use is therefore never merely a descriptive one or value neutral one, right? The Indo-Pacific is certainly not a coherent world region that is clearly uh, demarcated. And, and tellingly, uh, existing maps of the Indo-Pacific diverge in terms of geographic scope. But where the notion of the Indo-Pacific makes its contribution, or so um, Australian scholar Nick Beasley has argued, is it as a device to organize policy in a climate of geopolitical contestation. So the way policymakers define and imagine regions that can affect, of course, uh, the allocation of resources and high-level attention, the prioritization of security partners among countries, and, as, and the membership and agendas of, of regional uh, institutions. So let me just maybe stop because we want to get into, into Q&A, I, I guess, by, by sort of just making this, this very important uh, point that the Indo-Pacific is, is, is not a coherent world region. It's a, it's a, it's a strategic space, really. Um, and sort of it is a strategic space that was sort of invented by parties um, sort of interested in sort of making sure that China would not dominate sort of, you know, the region that was formerly called the Asia Pacific. And what do you do? Sort of you enlarge the region, right? You bring sort of the Indian Ocean and India's capabilities into the equation. And then you make the region so big that uh, sort of it cannot be dominated uh, by, by by China, and that is, you know, some of that are some of the interests underlying the Indo-Pacific concept, and that are shared. But there are different Indo-Pacific concepts, right? And some of them are more inclusive than others. So not not everyone sort of coming up with an Indo-Pacific strategy would agree that sort of th the main aim really then is to resist or, for that matter, contain China. Some of these strategies are more in inclusive uh, than others. And we should also be careful not to overuse that Indo-Pacific lens, right? I think it's sort of a bit of a flattening concept. So it, it's not really sort of useful to understand the interests, perspectives of, let's say, small uh, sort of, you know, uh, powers in, in the, um, in the uh, Pacific. 
uh, and, and others. So we shouldn't overuse it. It's an important uh, one, uh, but uh, you know things also might get lost when we use these sort of broad analytic lenses. So let me just stop on that point. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Kohlner. So I would uh, invite Professor uh, Mahapatra to respond to uh, the discussant's remarks. So please unmute. Thank you. Uh, both the remarks are very important. Uh, in the beginning, when I said that many people understand Indo-Pacific in different ways, uh, this, this, this is very clearly brought out that you know, even the scholars don't have a single opinion on Indo-Pacific. The government of India, the government of India, not once, multiple times has said, from Indian perspective, Indo-Pacific is not a strategy. From Indian perspective, Indo-Pacific is not an exclusive club of limited number of powers. For India, it is all-inclusive, including China. China may not like the term, but our notion is all-inclusive. This is what Indian view is. Secondly, you know, imagine European Union. How long did it take for European Union to take shape? starting from the European steel and coal community and before that the Marshall Plan, slowly, slowly the common market. It took a long time. Look at Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN. In 1967, 8th of September, 1967, it took birth. After 20 years of evolution in Manila, you know, Aquino was saying that we are yet to take off the ground. And today the whole world talks about ASEAN. Likewise, Indo-Pacific is an evolving concept. From the strategic point of view, I think Patrick made a very interesting point. Rise of China, ambition of China, intention to dominate, even probably uh, perceived Chinese intention to push the US influence out, uh, the BRI concept itself. In fact, I argue that a new kind of imperialism is now unfolding. Those who have read the traditional definition of imperialism, surplus capital being exported, looking for new markets and sources of raw materials, today it's a different kind of imperialism which is being promoted by a communist party that is called China. Because when the Chinese government invests money elsewhere, if the capital goes, the Chinese technicians go, the Chinese laborers go, the Chinese engineers go, everything is controlled. Ask the Pakistanis now how they're you know, cribbing about the whole thing. So a new kind of Sinocentric order apparently is evolving. And to check that, one of the best ways for the strategist, what, what, uh, what uh, Patrick just now said, is, is not, to, not to allow that to happen, right? So, India, in fact, even now believes in multipolarity. While India, Japan, US is a triangle, Russia, China, India is also a triangle, and we hold talk with them every now and then. While we are very much part of the Quad, India is also a very active member of SCO, but the Chinese and the Russians are also members there. Right. So it is not a strategy of the Quad countries alone. In fact, I would underline this fact. For a, for, for a strategist, they might think that quiet is nothing but a security grouping. 
But if you see uh, the meetings of the foreign ministers and the individual uh, you know, statements made in four capitals, later when we had uh, a virtual meeting, a virtual summit in March, and then recently an in-person summit. If you see, the scope is anything except military. It, it talks about new technology, it talks about climate, it talks about vaccine, it talks about so many other things. And in fact, more recently, I think Dave West, Joe Biden has given hint that the US would like to have an economic spin into the quad and the whole of Indo-Pacific region. Because if you want to really contest the Chinese one, you need the alternative. China apparently is first with money and that is why the BRI concept. No single country, including the US, has that much of money. The benefit that China has is it is the government money. All companies are government, most of them are government. So what Xi Jinping can promise to Pakistan, $60 billion, to Latin America, $200 billion, Joe Biden cannot do that. It's all private companies, it's a capitalist world. So things are different, right? So the effort is not just military, the effort is very comprehensive. But the goal, as Patrick said, is how not to allow a new kind of hegemon coming into being and then behaving the way it has been doing. Right. One point on uh, the Solomon Islands uh, that Cleo uh, said, that's a very good point. Now, even the Pacific Islands are waking up. The recent news about Samoa. Samoa has said no to the Chinese investment now. And it needs us for a small island to say no to uh, the Chinese investment. The Australians have taken due note, so are the Indians. For the first time, an Indian Prime Minister visits South Pacific Islands and tries to invest some money and do something. The Americans have taken note of it. The French, keeping in mind expansion of the Chinese presence in many, many islands, recently they have decided to open a new base in New Caledonia. And in fact, there are one or two other islands which have said no to China. Even Malaysia has you know, rejected some of the Chinese project. Uh, increasing number of countries slowly, slowly are finding it very difficult to accept the terms and conditions of um, the Chinese agreement and all. But the point very well noted, it should not be only China. Indo-Pacific is not China. Indo-Pacific is so many things. That's why I talked about the US policy, the Japanese policy, the Indian policy the trilaterals, the military, minilaterals, quadrilaterals, but the elephant in the room is China <laughs> at the moment. And we have to deal with the elephant. There's no doubt about it. Right. Okay, thank you, Singh. Sure, thank you so much, sir. Uh, you have uh, really highlighted very, very important issues. I would like to uh, start with uh, some questions. Uh, in fact, uh, there are two questions in the chat box. Um, sir, does relative decline of China, which you spoke about, does it mean a scope for India to be the heavyweight? Like, um, you know, the US is also uh, drifting apart. China, also you mentioned there could be a relative decline. So where is the scope of India? And um, for Professor Pascal, if uh, is China the troublemaker? You could um, think about it. Uh, Professor Mahapatra, over to you. Okay. You know, a decline of China, uh, it's like a relative decline, I said. 
know, for a long time, everybody talked about the rising China, the growth rate is so high, it's an economic miracle, the Chinese military modernization taking place, the, you know, this artificial intelligence uh, is fantastic in China, China is even competing with the US on even on technology, advanced technology and all. So most of the people who studied China saw the positive side only. They ignored the other side. So I'm just highlighting that there are other issues which are happening in China. So if, when you see the things in totality, then the way we talked about the relative decline of the USA, we can talk about the relative decline of China as well. See, all said and done, the US now has 11 aircraft carrier. How many China has? Two. All said and done, people around the globe would like to keep some dollar in their pocket or in their treasury. How many of them would like to keep RMB? Dollar is still gold, not RMB, right? Many people say that China is number one banker for the USA and it has bought a lot many treasury bonds and it might sell it. China is not going to do something by which it will ruin its own economy. So there are other side of the thing. Now, it's not that China declines and India goes up. India is going up in any case. Now, it is not a direct 100 meter race. Many countries are coming up. If China relatively declines, the way I'm explaining, it will be good for Indo-Pacific, it will be good for the world, even the US also. No single country should rule the world or a particular region. It should always be a multiple world, multiple actors. Of course, all of them cannot be equal, but all of them would have a say. It is like coalition politics in a democracy. No single party should have so much of say that it does whatever it wants to do. If there, if there is a coalition, then it would be good for, um, good for the whole society. So in that sense, I'm saying that take note of what is going wrong in China as well, because as Cleo very clearly said and very correctly said, a very strong China is problematic. Everybody has now realized a weak China will also impact the global economy. There is no doubt about it. Hundreds of billions of dollars of investment from many, many countries have gone into China. And the Chinese economy falters, the global economy is bound to be impacted. Thank you, sir. Uh, Dr. Pascal, over to you. Thank, thank you very much. Um, this has been great. Um, just uh, quickly on the, the, the idea of the Indo-Pacific is as sort of a new thing. Um, so if you, if you go back to the Austronesian period, if you go back two, 3,000 years, this was quite a contiguous area. You've got the, the, the Austronesians were all the way from the Pacific Islands through Madagascar and, and Indian trading was all, I mean, this, that's why you have Buddhism in Japan and, and Hindu temples in Indonesia. And so there has, there, it was the colonial period that started to cut up the ocean into spheres of influence. So we're, we're, we're kind of getting back to um, a previous period where uh, you have not, not just kind of a strategic breadth across the area, but potentially, hopefully, more economic con contiguity, more uh, cultural exchange, you know, across the region. And again, for that, India is central, as it has been for thousands and thousands of years, and, you know, until there was sort of kind of these, these disruptions to it. So, and this goes to this question of, is India a trouble, is China a troublemaker? So there's, they're they're good troublemakers too. They're bad. <laughs> they're bad troublemakers. The system that is that is in place 
uh, now. That that's sort of kind of what happened after the end of the Cold War and 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 is was kind of kept for kept going by momentum isn't necessarily the best system. Um, and China has China is or the Chinese Communist Party is doing what it thinks is in its best interest and in taking advantages of the weaknesses of the system. So when they go into Africa and build infrastructure, you know, people in Africa can very rightly say, you know, the Europeans had 200 years to build our own infrastructure and help us develop and they didn't do it. So, you know, somebody comes along and helps us put in a railway, you know, why not? Um, so until, so um, I, I think that what China is doing is that the problem with it is it's uh, predicated on essentially a colonial mindset where the economies aren't coupled. Um, this is why decoupling is perhaps not the most appropriate word. It's actually quite parasitic. So what it goes and puts in place is designed to suck out the raw materials or suck out the capital back to China, which is basically the, the colonial model. Um, so that's that's why I think it's a it's a problem. It, countries don't end up uh, countries as a whole, the populations of countries don't end up richer and happier and more stable for dealing with China, right? So the you know the BRI, I've started referring to the BRI as the bribery and repression initiative, because it just sort of spreads this kind of model of economic engagement across the region, which is very destabilizing and favors authoritarian regimes. So is it a troublemaker? Uh, yes. But that, that doesn't mean that the system should be preserved as it is. The system, the, the economic systems and political engagements need uh, to be revived, and the UN since the end of the Cold War. I mean, you know, there needs to be a bigger place for some of the more, some of the countries like India or like Japan in the region that have uh, a different, or Taiwan, a different way of operating that actually does spread security, but also prosperity and most crucially freedom. So it, it's a tr troublemaker, but the, but it's a bad troublemaker. That doesn't mean there shouldn't also be good troublemakers bringing us to a, to a better place. Right. Simi, Simi, I would like to give a footnote to what Cleo said just now. It's very important. You know, she did not uh, say it so clearly, but it is implied. When we say China is a troublemaker, we don't mean Chinese people. That's it. It's somebody else. Not. So we cannot say that Chinese people are troublemakers. When we say China is troublemaker, we know who is troublemaker. Yeah, and that's really important. And it shows why Taiwan is such an existential threat to China. Because China just sort of tries to justify its existence, the, the Chinese Communist Party, by saying the Chinese people can't handle democracy. Or this, and you look across the strait, and there's ethnically a group that's very similar to a large degree. And they're doing way better, way, way better under a different system. Yes. So, you know, I think the people of China want that same chance. And they're the first victims of the Chinese Communist Party. How many tens of millions of them were killed by that system? Uh, Dr. Pascal, um, a quick follow-up question on that when you spoke about the BRI. The road, the road component uh, 
means the maritime silk um, silk road of the 21st century in fact the chinese some chinese scholars have mentioned that it, this maritime silk road mirrors that of the indo pacific concept uh, wherein you know the the objectives are essentially the same wherein trade and cooperation figures very very prominently so uh, my question is are we really ready to embrace this kind of um, narrative as yet so it's it's not i mean i again i would go back to that earlier conceptualization of the spice route not the silk road where you know uh, kind of under the the indian engagement across the region there was a lot of trade back and forth so you know in the case of, of chinese ships they might go out of china full but they're not coming back full right unless it's with raw materials in order to export more to the rest of the world which is essentially the colonial economic model so um, I, you know, I I I think that you know, it's very helpful to get a to get a sense of the global trade that that you want that you think benefits your own country and and your own people. Global trade for the sake of global trade. Uh, there's a lot of different types of global trade, and what we're seeing now is really a very parasitic type of a structure coming out of the Chinese Communist Party, and they're overt about it. You know, they're in, in their comprehensive national power, they say, you know, this, these are the sort of things we want. We want to create a situation where we're number one in the world in terms of comprehensive national power, which means that basically if there's a decision to be made politically or strategically or economically that's big enough, it has to be referred back to Beijing for an okay, or we will have the power to torpedo it. So, so, so you know, it's hard because they've grabbed our words and given them their own definition to it. So when we use those words like globalization or global trade or things like that, we need to, as Professor Malpatra did just now to make it clear, but when you talk about China, you talk about the people of China, we need to start to break it down and be very clear about language and about what we mean. Um, India's already started to do it uh, in many different areas. And South China Sea, I've, he I've heard on Indian TV, it being called the ASEAN Sea. You know, that's a reappropriation of the, a strategic mindset that is very helpful. Um, so again, I, I, would, I would encourage, you know, think, break it down into the pieces. Think about what pieces you think are good, or what pieces are a problem, and then reappropriate the mental space in the strategic environment that will help you envisage and shape the future that you think is best. Thank you, ma'am. Um, my question to uh, Professor Patrick is, uh, you know, earlier the European countries were actually hard pressed by the Trump administration to give their versions of the Indo-Pacific and to actually bandwagon with the United States. Um, and uh, in fact, earlier France was the only country that uh, came up uh, very, very vigorously. Um, but very recently, uh, there was the European Union strategic document uh, on the Indo-Pacific, but then it lost its fire soon after the AUKUS was announced. So what is your take on the, uh, on the European strategy towards the Indo-Pacific given this kind of um, uh, situation? Right. Um, well, I mean, sort of the, the European strategy for cooperation in the Indo-Pacific, that's how it's officially uh, called, um, goes, of course, very much beyond uh, that, that sort of defense and security dimension that has been often, you know, put uh, sort of, you know, very much center stage by, um, you know, by the media or, or by pundits. I mean, that, that's one of seven sort of priority uh, action areas 
uh, that, that the uh, sort of EU strategy uh, mentions. Um, so it also includes other very important things like, you know, sustainable and inclusive prosperity. So that, that's all about trade, trade policy um, action. Green transition uh, is, is very much uh, in, in that strategy. So that's all about climate action. Um, sort of ocean governments, digital uh, governments, uh, connectivity issues, and human security. And actually sort of, you know, some of, actually something like human security might be, might be the most important dimension of it all uh, for, for many people in the, in the Pacific uh, Island uh, countries. Uh, and sort of quite a bit of cooperation that the EU will be involved in might and will not be sort of, you know, in, in the security domain or defense domain, uh, but very much uh, sort of in the domain of sort of green, green transition, right? Uh, so earlier on, Prasamara Patra talked about sort of, you know, China being sort of, you know, the, the, the elephant in the room. Well, of course it is, but maybe there are more than just one elephant. Uh, there's more than one elephant in, in the room, sort of, you know. Um, very interesting perspective, again, from, from the Pacific Island countries, sort of Rear Admiral uh, William Napoto, sort of, you know, a couple of years ago, sort of metaphorically speaking, he said, well, there are three elephants in, in the room in, in, in the Pacific, metaphorically speaking. So it's, it's the US, it's, it's China, and it's climate change, and climate change is winning. Um, and so the, the point here is sort of, you know, we, we shouldn't just leave sort of the Indo-Pacific to, to the strategists, right? Um, sort of, of course, it is very much uh, sort of, it was developed very much against the background of uh, geopolitical, geoeconomic dynamics linked to the rise of China. But there are, you know, very important issues that don't respect national borders. Think COVID-19, think climate change, uh, where sort of, you know, Hopefully, China is not the troublemaker, but part of the solution uh, to addressing these these uh, uh, global uh, challenges. I just have no point, and I see sort of uh, clear want to come in there. Well, well, uh, what I want to say is uh, part of the relative decline of the United States is all of the flights have been canceled for the last two days, three days. American Airlines has fallen apart, and the flight that I was supposed to be on last night was uh, canceled and delayed to this morning. And I unfortunately have to get to the airport or I may be stuck here for a very, very long time. So uh, I just wanted to, to thank um, uh, Imprey, Dr. Mehta, uh, Professor Polner, but especially Professor Mapatra for all you've done and all you continue to do to, uh, to keep this uh, a dynamic, evolving field uh, during a time when it's much needed. So, so, and and thank you all for 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 joining us wherever you are, and uh, and and see you next time. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. And happy journey. Happy journey. Yes. Thank you, ma'am. So, uh, I'll quickly come to uh, Professor Mahapatra uh, before we move to the way forward round. You know, um, India appear. How does India navigate its way? Uh, through the uh, differing objectives and fundamentals of the Indo-Pacific uh, uh, region, of the Indo-Pacific construct, and especially when uh, uh, when the United States and China are really engaged in um, competition, and uh, uh, where is where does India lie in all this? Because there is a, a follow-up question on this. Because if every country is holding different uh, views on Indo-Pacific. This lack of coherence will anyhow hamper the working of the alliances or partnerships or friendships for that matter. So what is your take on this, sir? Okay. You see, 
First of all, India is not an elephant. It is not going to be an elephant in the near future. India uh, has already emerged, I would say, as an important global player. And uh, you can see the Indian actions in G20, even G7 as an observer in SCO, in UN, in, in climate change uh, discussion and debate. The other day we had a very powerful speech by our prime minister in Glasgow. So India is an important player. How does India look at the Indo-Pacific developments? Number one, as I mentioned earlier, India looks at Indo-Pacific as a geo-economic construct where India can be an active player for peace, stability, and prosperity. Why is it that India, Japan, and others keep on talking about free and open Indo-Pacific? It is because the space of the water, the maritime domain, is restricted. When China begins to militarize occupied islands, and does not listen to Hapatis and other claimants to South China Sea, declares an air identification zone and warns every country, the moment your aircraft comes here, you tell us, then challenges the very concept of freedom of navigation, then it is important to harp on the need for an open and free Indo-Pacific. This is what India would like to do. Many people think that India's trade and investment are related uh, with only the West, the Europe and America. No, the billions of dollars of trade, Indian trade goes through South China Sea as well, right? So this is, this, this is one uh, important point. It is true that the Americans and the Chinese are in a way having some kind of confrontation. It's not a Cold War. It cannot be a Cold War because US and Indian, uh, Chinese economy are so interdependent they cannot afford the kind of colder conflict the US and the Soviet Union had in the past. They have to compete, they have to cooperate, they have to contest, then they have to confront. And the confrontation is going on in very many ways in South China Sea and elsewhere. So where does India figure here? You know, apparently on the surface, it appears that India is uh, joining the bandwagon of the United States, but it is not true. As I said a while ago, we have relationship with Russia, with China, uh, with many other countries, which the Americans don't like, with, with Iran. Uh, look at, for example, how we are trying very hard to convince the American Congress that S-400 missiles that we bought from Russia are important for India, and these missiles are not going to hamper American interest. Right? We are doing that. Now, we have taken so many strong measures against China flexing its military muscle along the border. But even now, despite the pandemic, despite the Indian action against China, China-India trade is still number one. China is the largest trading partner. And what does that mean? That means China is next door. We have a long border. We are neighbors. If Chinese and the Indians can come together, it will create the largest ever contiguous market in the globe. So India does not want any kind of containment of China. What India wants is constraining the Chinese negative activities. What India wants is China's positive participation in Indo-Pacific for co-prosperity of every country in this region. But there are certain policies, they're not in keeping with India's interest, 
or the American interest, or the Japanese interest, or even the European interest. That is where we have to do certain things to make China a really significant stakeholder in the region. Finally, European Union is not a military organization. A large number of members of the European Union are also members of NATO. So they have a fallback on security. Now, when the German Navy comes to the Indo-Pacific, was it for trade purposes? No. When the French Navy came here and did exercises with Americans and the Indians, was it for trade purposes? No. When the British Navy, Elizabeth recently came and then uh, uh, the Naval officer made a statement in Mumbai about Indo-Pacific and all, was it only trade and commerce? No. So there are important, powerful members of the European Union who are keeping an eye on the strategic development in the Indo-Pacific as well. So the European Union strategy is totally different from the major power strategy in the Indo-Pacific. The fact remains that all the major powers in the world now, the US, Germany, France, Britain, the Japan, and middle powers like India, Australia, they're all looking at Indo-Pacific so that it becomes peaceful water, a cooperative sphere for economic dynamism, which is more important because of the pandemic and the suffering that has gone into every kitchen. And for that, the responsibility of the government is so much. Uh, if you send 200 planes to Taiwan airspace, if you send your troops and fortifier, even in the winter along the Sino-Indian border, if you go and do whatever you are doing in Xinjiang, and if you do whatever you did in Hong Kong, these are not good messages. These are of concerns which India uh, would not like to see. Thank you. Absolutely, sir. Thank you so much. In fact, any rule-abiding country would not like to see this uh, happening. And so thank you so much for your thoughts. I would now uh, request um, Professor Kohlner to share his concluding remarks, his um, the way forward, so to say, where are we moving towards in the Indo-Pacific realm, as Professor Mahapatra said, uh, maintenance of international peace and order, prosperity for all, um, how do we move forward? Your recommendations. Over to you, sir. Well, I don't know what I should sort of, you know, uh, sort of just put, you know, some recommendations on, on the table, but maybe just talk about sort of uh, perspectives. And perspectives uh, certainly uh, diverge. I mean, the European perspective or the European Union perspective, I should say. Uh, is different uh, from the United States uh, perspective. Um, it's not about sort of, you know, strategic competition with China across the board. Uh, there are, you know, quite a few issues uh, where of sort of European Union and, and China don't see uh, uh, eye to eye. Actually, it's, it's, it's a very sort of uh, uh, long list. Uh, but there will also be sort of, you know, uh, issue areas in, in which sort of European Union and others will need to sort of uh, cooperate uh, with, with uh, China. Right, uh, sort of global uh, issues, uh, whether it comes to, to climate change, uh, global health, uh, and uh, so on. Um, so it's a slightly different take that, that the European uh, Union uh, uh, brings to the table. Uh, and I think what it also brings to the table is its sort of uh, uh, economic uh, power. And it is ex the experience sort of not long ago, sort of uh, with the uh, sort of uh, Cold War. So obviously, I mean, sort of there are. Uh, these days, quite a few actors who seem to be really sort of eager for a sort of new uh, Cold War. Uh, but sort of, you know, the European experience with the Cold War wasn't entirely a happy one. Let's let's put it uh, uh, that way. 
Um, so there's certainly a strong uh, sort of you know reason to, sort of to, to not go in that direction. And I think what, what sort of discussions about the Indo-Pacific have really brought to the fore uh, is uh, one of the things is shared interests, uh, shared interests of the uh, of, of India uh, and the European Union. I mean, so that both are not interested uh, in seeing sort of this strategic space uh, dominated uh, by a rising China. Uh, you know, both very much prefer a multi-polar uh, uh, sort of regions where sort of the interests uh, and perspectives of uh, sort of uh, all the players involved get respected. And sort of quite a bit of dialogue has evolved from that between the European Union and India, and, and that, that's bound to, to continue in the future. And that's a very good thing. Thank you, sir. Uh, Professor Mahapatra, over to you. If you could share your food for thought, as you always do towards the end of the program. So. No. Uh, my food for thought is uh, for, for Patrick and uh, for Europeans and others. The role of the European Union in Indo-Pacific is very crucial to uh, uh, develop a multipolar world, uh, sorry, a multipolar structure in Indo-Pacific. You know, we need the participation, active participation of the European Union in generating not only prosperity and bringing more and more connectivity. We need a lot of investment for, uh, from the European Union. But the presence of France, Germany, uh, and Britain is not part of the European Union, but Britain uh, being a European country, if they also come and play a role, it should not be only US versus China. Either listen to Washington or listen to Beijing or have a middle path or stay away from both. So there, there should be a more and more important parts in the players in the region that can ensure peace and prosperity in the Indo-Pacific. So good. Thank you so much, sir. And thank you so much uh, to Professor Kohler. It has been a wonderful discussion and set of fascinating deliberations from um, the wonderful uh, panelists that we had. So I would like to propose the formal vote of thanks. Uh, we were really little ahead of uh, the time, but uh, so thankful to all of you for uh, keeping uh, uh, your patience intact. On behalf of uh, the IMPRI Center for International Relations and Strategic Studies, um, I thank our speaker, Professor Chintamani Mahapatra, for sparing his time uh, from his schedule, busy schedule, and uh, talking to us and informing us, actually, about you know, his perspectives on uh, the issues and challenges as uh, Indo-Pacific has navigated from the Asia-Pacific construct. Uh, I also take this opportunity to thank our discussants, eminent discussants, Dr. Cleo Pascal, um, and also Professor Patrick Kolner for joining us. Um, thank you so much to all the participants here on Zoom and also on Facebook Live. And I also thank all um, the participants who will be watching us later on YouTube and listening to the program on our different podcasts. So I owe you our gratitude on behalf of IMPRI and I wish you all a very good day. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wonderful being part of it. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Simi. Wonderful. Thank you. Professor. Hope to see Professor Patrick someday in India. Absolutely. We will stay in touch. We will stay in touch.